That was good, wasn't it? Come on. Stars, praise God for that. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. So glad you're here. Matthew 5, we're looking at the greatest sermon that was ever preached. It was preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, we find the eight Beatitudes. These Beatitudes give us the eight identifying marks of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. They tell us what we should be, what we should look like, and how we should act. The first four reflect our relationship to God, while the last four reflect our relationship with one another. Matthew 5, let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, let's pause right there for a moment. Here Jesus is, and he goes up on the side of this mountain, and he sits down. That was the customary way a teacher would teach. And the Bible makes the distinction. There's a crowd that comes to him, but you'll notice there's another distinction to where it mentions the disciples. He's speaking not necessarily to the crowds, but he's speaking to the disciples. And there is a great distinction between those two, isn't there? Even this morning, there are some who were here a part of the crowd. You come to see what's going on. You come to see the show. You come because you're curious. But there are some in this room, you come this morning because you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a follower. You have been sold out. You're committed and you are surrendered. And as Jesus begins to speak, he is speaking primarily to his disciples. These are the Beatitudes, and you'll notice that each Beatitude begins with the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Each one begins with this word blessed. The word blessed, it means happy, but more so than just meaning happy, it means that one is satisfied. It means that one is content. It means that one is at peace within their being. The word is important. It's used 50 times in our New Testament, and it's used to describe those who have a happy condition of the soul. But what's interesting is it is independent of circumstances. Every one of us, we experience happiness when something good happens in our life. Amen? We experience happiness when we get a promotion at our job. When we get a new car and we're driving off the lot and we're trying to figure out all the buttons and all this new technology, it makes us happy. But what we see is that it's always vanishing. It's there for a moment, but then the new wears off and it is gone ever so quickly. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a happiness, a satisfaction that is not tied to the circumstances around us. He's talking about a condition of our soul. And every time that we see the word blessed in our Bible, it always refers to believers. Never one time in the scriptures do we see an unbeliever described as blessed or as happy. 
The world does not offer happiness. It's only through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the Beatitudes, what you're going to find is that there is a great paradox to them. We would expect this. We would expect it to say, blessed are the rich. Blessed are the successful. Blessed are the bosses. Blessed are the popular. But that's not what he says. He comes and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek or the humble. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted and those who are insulted. Jesus comes and he twists everything upside down and he says, if you want a life of satisfaction, this is what your life must look like. Uh, reminds me of, of Solomon. Solomon is a man who had everything you could ever want in life. He had a palace that was majestic. He had riches that were lavish. Everything a man could want, he had it. But as he writes in Ecclesiastes, he says it's all vanities of vanity. In other words, it's worthless. It's not giving me completeness. It's not satisfying me. It is empty. Pleasure is not the path to happiness. Possessions are not the path to happiness. But for a lot of us, if we really reflect this morning, we are trying to find happiness in the world instead of through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's always going to come back empty. It's been said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But how many of us have spent 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years trying to find satisfaction in the world, but it's never enough? And we always think this, if I had a little bit more money, I would be satisfied. And then we get a little bit more money and it's still not enough. If I had a little bit of a nicer car, I would be satisfied. And we get that car, and it's still not enough. So Jesus comes, and he says, let me tell you how to be happy. Let me tell you how to be blessed. You cannot seek the living among the dead. Happiness is not in this world. And it could be that in verse 1, he looks around, and he sees the people. He sees the crowds, and they're living much like many of us are living. They're trying to find satisfaction, but they can't find it. And so maybe he sits down on the side of this, this hillside, and he calls the people together. And he says, I see what you're doing. I see the way that you're trying to live. I know you're coming back empty time and time and time again. Let me give you the secret. Let me give you the key. Let me show you how you can make your life count, how you can be blessed, how you can be satisfied, how you can be secure, because the way of the world is not going to do it. It's a trap from the enemy. And so he gives these statements, and it's like they're upside down, but if we believe in the Lord, we believe in the Word of God, we must apply these to our life. And so it begins with beatitude number one. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? It means blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who are poor 
in their spirit. They look at their, their spiritual condition and they say, I'm broken, I'm lost, I'm nothing. My best is not good enough. My church attendance will not enter me into heaven. My financial contributions, they're not enough. My being a good person, it will never reach, it will never satisfy. I look at my life and I am totally broken. I'm totally dependent upon God. Until we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious to us because we can't see him because we're looking at ourselves. Until we see how really damned we are, we can't appreciate how glorious he is. Until we see our poverty, we cannot see his riches. And so we've got to understand who we are and who he is. You say, well, why does he start right here? Because that is the fundamental element to salvation. To realize that we can't do it. All other religions say, do this, do this, do this, and appease the angry God, but we're different. We look and we say, there's nothing I can do. It's all about what he has already done. And so blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that leads us to our beatitude for this morning. Beatitude number two, look at verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Anybody in here ever experienced mourning in life? Every one of us. Every one of us have gone through difficulties, tragic, tragic times in our life. Reminds me of David in Psalm 55. Listen to his heart. He says, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. David says, if I could, I want to escape from all of it. I want to get away from all this grief and all this sorrow and all this agony. And there's a lot of folks who resonate with that. They say, I just want to get away from it. I want to abandon all the troubles that are all around me. To find that escape, we long for the place where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more grief, and no more difficult times around us. But Jesus comes and he says, but blessed are the mourn, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Misery is a part of life. When you look at your Bible and your New Testament, there are nine Greek words that talk about grief and sadness. There needs to be a lot of words because grief is a large part of our life. We experience tears and sorrows, and I hate to tell you this, but I don't think it's gonna get any better. I think it's going to remain with us. There is an expected sorrow that we all experience. There's an expectedness that there's going to be weeping in grief. Harvard Research did a study and they found that, that crying is an important safety valve. When you bottle up your emotions, it affects your health and when you cry, there's a release that goes with it. Grief can be a gift from God. The same study went on to say this, it surprised me, catch this. They said that American women cry 3.5 times each month while American men cry 1.9 times each month. There's a lot of sadness around us. In our culture, we try to belittle that and we see this emotion as a weakness, 
but it's not. We, we find it. We find it in the Scripture. Psalm 42, 1 and 3, it says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your guide? He feels like God is distant. God, where are you? I'm hurting. I'm struggling. I'm in a moment of agony. My tears are my food. They're always before me. But God, you seem so distant. Have you ever felt like that? You ever been, been praying and it feels like your prayers are just limited to the room around you? You ever been going through something that was so hard and you were praying so diligently, but it felt like there was no answer in sight? That's what David is saying. God, my tears, they are my food. Paul says to Timothy, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day as I remember your tears. I long to see you. Timothy was discouraged. He was depressed. He was down. And Paul says, I know you're going through a hard time. I know it's difficult. I know you're discouraged. I just wonder, is there anybody here today who's discouraged? You're going through a hard time in life. You had a plan for your life, and things have happened, things have changed, and you look around, and you're dis discouraged. You're despaired. You're distraught over what you see around you. Maybe it's a, a family member or a decision that was made, but something is hurting you on the inside. Or Mark chapter 9. A father comes up to Jesus. His, his son is demon-possessed, and he comes up to Jesus, and he's got tears in his eyes, and he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Sadness for one that he loves, that he cares for. Do you experience that? Or the woman in Luke 7 who comes into the room, and she sees Jesus reclining at the table. She doesn't say a word. She goes to Jesus, and the Bible says, with her tears, she washes his feet. She realized that her sins were many. They've been forgiven. And as a, a gesture of worship, she weeps over his feet. Or Jesus who weeps over Jerusalem and weeps over the death of Lazarus and the agony that it brings. Grief is a part of life. Ecclesiastes 3 says to everything there's a season, a time and a purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, and a time to weep. But I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid that in the church, we pretend that everything's fine, don't we? In the church, we come in week after week, and we put a smile on our face, and we get our religious voice on, hey, brother, how you doing? Everything's good in my home. And we pretend there's no problems, there's no grief, there's no tragedy, but the church exists to go beside each other, to encourage, to lift up, to be there for those who are hurting. We've got to be real. We've got to be authentic with what we're going through if we're going to be the people that God has called us to be. That's why he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because understand this, God is at work in our mourning. Now, some, some see this, and they think it means that any kind of grief is blessed. There are poets who have wrote about this. There's a, a poet who said, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and nary a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. That's good, that's true. We experience that. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because God is developing us. 
He's changing who we are. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We realize that in times of mourning, there is comfort from the Lord. Has anybody experienced that in your life? I'm talking about that peace that surpasses all understanding, that peace that you look around and the whole world is falling apart, but you know the Lord's got your back, and so you can still press on. That's what I'm talking about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I, I saw a glimpse of it yesterday afternoon. We got a call and went to the hospital, Good Shepherd, went up to the ICU, and they've got these ICU rooms, and they are like a small little box. And I walked in that room and around Ricky, Ricky Gibson, he's laying in the bed, and he's got a tube going down his throat, and he's got his family gathered around. Walk in the room and, and there, there's tears that are being shed. There's a, a quietness to the room. A quietness to where you don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. There's sorrow. There's grief. There's, there's all these emotions. And, and we, we gather around and we begin to pray. Pray for God's will to be done. Pray for a peace and a comfort. And in that moment, I could, I could feel that. I could feel a peace from the Lord. Have you felt it? Have you experienced it? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It could be that in your life right now, you're going through something that's really tough, that's really difficult, and you feel all alone. And maybe what you need to hear this morning, you're not alone. The Lord is there sticking closer than a brother. He loves you. He cares for you. He knows what you're going through. He longs to give you peace and comfort. But, but I also think if we stop there, we don't go far enough. I think there's more to this verse than just general grief and general sorrow. I think he's talking about a godly grief. You say, well, Case, what is a godly grief? Good question. Let me tell you. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's two types of grief. There's the grief from the world, and it leads to death. But then there's a godly grief, and did you notice what it leads to? It leads to repentance. I believe when we look at this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, we're talking about the idea of mourning over the sin in our life. Beatitude number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize they are nothing, they cannot meet the standard of God, connected to that. Blessed are those who, when they see their sin, they mourn over it. They're broken over it. Their sin is a big deal because they realize what it does to the heart of God. You say, give me an example of the difference in a, a godly grief and a worldly grief. Because we all encounter grief. Saved folks encounter grief, and lost folks encounter grief. When you look back to Matthew 26, you find two individuals who made a wrong decision. You find Judas, and Judas came, and he betrays the Lord Jesus with a kiss. You remember? But then you also find Peter. Peter's up in the room with Jesus, and Jesus says, Peter, you're going to fall away. And what does Peter say? Not me. I'll never fall away. I'll die with you if I have to. 
And Peter says, and Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And again, Peter says, no, I'm not going to. All these other weak ones, they might fall away, but I'm not going to. You know what happened. The night goes on, and uh, Peter is asked, hey, I know you. You were with Jesus. And what does he say? Not me. I don't know the man. Hey, I know you. You were with Jesus. Not me. I don't know that guy. Hey, your accent gives you away. I know you. I don't know that guy. And the rooster crows. And he remembers. He remembers what Jesus had said. The Bible says in that moment he turns. He catches the eye of Jesus. Jesus is looking through his eyes. And he begins to weep. He's broken. He is sorrowful. You keep reading. You see that, that Judas has grief in his heart. And he goes back, and he goes back to give the money back. He says, I messed up. I don't want this anymore. Take it back. He throws it on the floor. But then what happened to these two? Judas is so grief-stricken, he goes out and hangs himself. There's sorrow. There's grief. But it does not lead to repentance. Peter, on the other hand, he's broken. He's sorrowful. He's grieving, but Jesus comes, finds him. He repents. He's reinstated, and he gets on fire for the things of Christ and changes the world. There's two types of sorrow. One leads to death, and one leads to repentance. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. The word mourning here is the strongest of those nine words. It's talking about death. It's talking about that final state. It's what Isaiah says when he says, all my righteousness is as filthy rags. I wonder this. Here's the point. You want the, the summary statement? Why are we not broken over the sin in our life? That's the question. Why are we not broken over the sin in our life? Anybody here struggle with sin? You don't raise your hand, but I know you do. I know you. Anybody here, you give in more often than you should? Like, like Paul looking at himself in the mirror and saying, I don't know why I do the things I do. I do the things I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Can we resonate with that? Okay, why does it not break our heart? Well, we have sin. Sin grieves the heart of God. It is a serious thing. Why does our sin not break us down? I'm asking this for my life. Why do I not hit an altar broken because I've got sin in my life? Why does it not hurt me? Why does it not change me? Why don't I see what it cost Jesus? Why don't you? Why don't you grieve over the sin in your life? Because when we look in our Bible, we don't see this flippant repentance. We see genuine, heartfelt repentance. David, after his his sin with Bathsheba, he writes Psalm 32. And in verse 2, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I've got this sin, and my bones are wasting away. I feel it. It's all over me. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That's conviction. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I'm struggling here because I know I committed a sin, a gross sin. I sinned against you. But then verse 5, but I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
It goes on in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He says, I can't get rid of it. I see my sin day and night. It's heavy upon my heart. It's serious. Lord, I need your forgiveness. I cannot keep on living like this. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When you read that, it's a heart that's broken because of sin. Is that true of your life? Is your heart broken because of sin? When you're watching the television and you're entertained by something that you should not find entertaining, does it break your heart? When you're talking with someone and you begin to gossip and you get caught up in that trap and then you turn and you walk away, does it, does it break your heart? Does it do something to you? When you have something evil in your, your heart or in your mind, does it bother you? Or do we just keep on pushing like it's no big deal? He says, blessed are those who mourn their sin because they're going to be comforted. The comfort he's talking about is the comfort of forgiveness. In life, there is grief. There's grief of loneliness and depression and rejection and frustration and defeat. But listen to me, your biggest problem, your biggest problem is sin. And that's where we must start. My biggest problem is sin. It says in James, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. When it comes to sin, your family weighs in the balance. Your life weighs in the balance. Your purpose, it weighs in the balance. It comes to this serious issue of sin. And we live in a world to where everything is relative and folks don't want to talk about sin any longer. But I want to remind you, sin is serious. Once sin is no longer in the church's vocabulary, there's no longer the need for words like forgiveness and grace. The gospel is the good news to the world because it solves the problem of sin. If we fail to acknowledge sin, then we fail to acknowledge salvation. And we live in a world to where people don't want to acknowledge sin. There's a study done in uh, U.S. News Today. And they came up with this, with this word that is absolutophobia. Never heard that. Don't know if it's a real word. But they said this new generation... They're so relative in their beliefs that they believe that there is no absolute any longer. And so in other words, what's right for you may not be right for me. What's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. And they said, you can go on any given university and you can go and ask questions. Is the Holocaust wrong? Is child sacrifice wrong? And there's about 10 to 20% of students on every campus who will say, I can't answer that. It may be wrong for me, but it may not be wrong for you. Everything is relative. But I want to tell you, as the people who love the Lord, this book tells us what is right and what is wrong. If we want to know where to stand, this is where we stand. It tells us how to live our life. 
There is sin. Sin separates us from God. And the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And so the question before us today is, do we grieve over the sin in our life? My sin is a big deal. Your sin is a big deal. We can't be hypocritical, walk in the door and pretend like sin doesn't exist because it does. We can't come through the door and say, well, I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to read more. I'm going to study more. I'm going to attend church more. It's not enough for you to do it. It's got to be the power of the Holy Spirit through our life. It's not an idea to come and get depressed and live in despair and say, woe is me because I am broken. Those things don't change. What we need is true repentance. Repentance to where we come to this place, we see the sin in our life, and we decide to turn from it. Turn from it. Look, I love, I love happy services, don't you? I love when there's a good joke and we get to smile and we get to laugh. I'm sorry, that's not today. Today, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When's the last time that this place turned into a room of mourning? I can't remember. I don't know. When's the last time in your life there was mourning because you knew you broke the heart of God? It changes one's mindset. Can, can you imagine can you imagine if that was our heart? How much different we would be if we were striving for holiness to such a level that when we sin, there's conviction and there's grief and there's, there's brokenness, there's mourning as we seek that forgiveness from the Lord. Not, not this idea that I can live however I want to because Jesus died for me. That's what a lot of folks do. I've got this grace card. What does Romans 6 say? It says, may we abound in sin so that grace may abound. Should we keep on sinning because we have grace? That's how a lot of people live. I'm going to live any way I want to because I've got grace. But then the next verse it says, by no means may it never be. I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to tread on the blood of Jesus like that. When I sin, I'm going to be grief-hearted because of it. When's the last time you mourned over your sin? When you do that, what happens? He says you'll be comforted. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the most essential, the most blessed, and the most difficult thing that God has ever done for us. Forgiveness. It's the most essential because it keeps us from eternal hell and gives us joy in this life. It's the most blessed because it introduces us to fellowship with God that goes on forever. And it's the most difficult because it costs the Son of God his life on a cross. And that is where we must meet. So how do we do it in closing? How do we become a people who mourn sin? We've got to have a proper view of sin. It's a big deal. It matters. It's our biggest problem. Listen, if you've got a sin that you keep flirting with and you think it's no big deal, it is a big deal. It matters. If you're living under this grace card and you're trampling over the blood of Jesus, I hope there's so much conviction this morning that your life changes. There needs to be. The blood of Jesus is that precious. We've got to change the way that we see sin. And then we've got to pray for a contrite heart. Contrition. It means that there's this, this feeling of remorse, penitence, uh, affected by, by guilt to be broken over the sin in our life. Pray for that. 
Let me ask you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your head. I want you to think about it. The question is, is really simple this morning. Are you broken over the sin in your life? There's all types of things that we grieve over. Loss and suffering and grief abounds. But what about our sin? Do you grieve over the sin in your life? Maybe what needs to happen this morning is you need to start this time of prayer right now. You need to say, Lord, I am, I am sorry. I have lived my life like sin doesn't matter. I've not tried to honor you. I've become complacent with my sin, and that changes today. Lord, show me in my life what does not bring you honor and glory. I'm ready to change it. If it's a television show, I'm done with it. If it's a, a category of music, I'm walking away from it. If it's an attitude of my heart or a relationship, Lord, I want to strive to focus on you. Lord, show us in our life what needs to change, what needs to be different. Lord, show me. And then my fear is that we will know what needs to change, but we won't do anything about it. If you want to honor God, it means that there's got to be a change. Oh, that we would be broken over our sin. That we would mourn, maybe over the way that we speak to our spouse. We'd grieve, maybe over the way that we have spoken to our children. We'd grieve over the areas that are killing us spiritually. We'd seek true repentance. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that was shed. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not received that comfort, they've never been saved, I pray that today's the day. I pray that you will call them, draw them to salvation. For the rest, God, the rest of us that we're going through life and maybe we pretend like sin is not a big deal, I pray that you will show us how serious it actually is. Lord, that we will evaluate every word that we speak because we'll be judged for every word spoken. We will evaluate our heart and our life. Lord, we'll be, be convicted and grieved over sin. And then we'll realize that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us and our comfort will be found through forgiveness. So Lord, may your will be done during this time of invitation. Let our hearts to be broken. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.